everybody. Welcome to Baking with House of Bread. My name is Sheila and I am your host of this podcast and I started House of Bread many years ago and I enjoy teaching people how to bake and I hope I can help you get further along in the bread baking journey. So in this episode we're going to talk about the elements of bread other than flour. And we're going to go into choosing the right leavening agents, how different types of liquids affect the doughs, how and when to add spice nuts, fruits, seeds, or other grains to your mix, as well how temperature of the air and the temperature of the ingredients will affect the timing length for your proofing periods. Okay, so leavening agents. So the primary leavening agent for breads is yeast. And in the bakery, we use traditional fresh cake yeast and but the problem with home bakers, it really only has a shelf life of about two weeks um, and you've got to refrigerate it. So at, for home bakers, we suggest an instant dry yeast that is contained in a vacuum sealed container as opposed to the dry active yeast that comes in packets. And I know it's kind of confusing because there's the instant yeast and then there's the dry active instant yeast. Well, what's the difference, right? Well, the instant yeast has more life cells which is why it's fast acting and doesn't have to be tested prior to use. And instant, if you think of vacuum sealed equals instant. Okay, it isn't that you can't use the packets at home. You know, so if you got some around, uh, by all means use them, just know that you have to test these first. And what that means is just basically putting the yeast in some warm water and then it'll bubble after a while if you wanna shorten the time that's going to take the bubbles to add a little sweetener or the honey or sh sugar and that will quicken the reaction and with the bubbles basically the yeast is, is back it's alive and it's ready to exhibit carbon dioxide in your dough if it doesn't bubble then throw it out and go buy yourself some yeast okay so the best baker's dry yeast i have found is the saf instant dry yeast and that's a capital s-a-f it's basically a French company and it comes in a 17 ounce package um, and it has a shelf life of over one year. I mean, I actually used it two years later after keeping it in the refrigerator and it worked fine. And I even pushed it. It was like three years <laughs> and I made some pizza dough and it didn't work that great. Then I ended up about three times as much as I usually do to get a small rise out of that dough. I mean, for pizza dough, it doesn't really matter, right? Because you don't need to have much of a rise. I mean, most of the flavor generated from pizza comes from all the ingredients on the top. However, when making bread and having a bad batch of yeast, it is really maddening to go through all the measuring, mixing, and kneading to create that dough, and then just sit there and look at it, and it's not its not growing. And you're like, okay, what did I do? Um, did I forget the yeast? Did I have bad yeast? What happened? So when in doubt, test the yeast, and you won't have to go through all that trouble for nothing. And you can find that instant yeast at most grocery stores, restaurant supply stores, or other wholesale grocery places. And I've also seen like Costco carries a vacuum sealed dry instant yeast. Um, that really is the same thing as SAF. And I suggest storing it in the refrigerator after you break that vacuum seal. I mean, you can also put it in the freezer if you don't think you're gonna use yeast that much within the year or two. But I truly hope that you enjoy baking bread so much and all the taste rewards that comes from it that you're going to be using that yeast within the year. Okay, wild yeast. That's an alternative to commercial yeast. And what that is, basically it's a sourdough starter. And the starter collects wild yeast that's in the air um, and you've got to feed it periodically with flour and water. 
I mean, natural sourdough is wonderful to raise and grow. And natural sourdoughs give the bread a, a kind of a slightly sweet and sour tang. Um, I do intend to do a whole episode on sourdough starters, how to start a feed store. But for now, I'll tell you that the place to start your bread baking journey is not with the naturally leavened hard-crusted sourdough loaves. I mean, quite frankly, it's just too difficult to start there. And you and the risk is, is you're going to get burned out and frustrated with your bread baking and quit. And I really want you to stick with it. And just like you have to be patient with the doughs to develop flavor, you have to be patient to properly master baking bread. Well, not sure anyone ever masters bread baking. So let's just say patient in developing a good working intuitive relationship with the doughs. The other type of breads are called quick breads. Quick breads are, are like banana nut bread, zucchini bread, lemon bread. And they're called quick because there's no rising time. So hence the name quick. Yeasted items take time. So they're not quick breads. So if it has yeast, it's traditional bread. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already are aware of that. And I can tell you, though, that the general public is not. So because we used to title one menu category as quick breads and nobody knew what it was and like what's that um and so then i just changed the label to instead of quick breads i just use sweet breads and in really in business you don't want to confuse people because confused people don't spend money and most people shopping in a bakery don't really know how to bake and maybe that's why they're there right so um and, and it can be a good thing but anyway quick breads use a baking soda or baking powder or both and both of those are fast acting Uh, The baking soda will need something else to activate it. So it needs an acid with it. And so you'll see with baking soda, you'll see like lemon juice or buttermilk and just get it to react. And some breads, like I said, will use both. So like an Irish soda bread, which is really more kind of a scone type process than a bread. However, you don't want to make the mistake of substituting baking soda for baking powder in recipes. They are not interchangeable. I mean, we've done this by mistake in the in the bakery and I can tell right away if I walk in and my blueberry muffins kind of got a uh, a brown look to it it's and you can tell it's not burnt what happened was they used baking soda instead of baking powder and um, and not only does it look kind of dark and ugly but it also tastes terribly salty and so what we did since then is we put the baking soda in a different container and baking powder in a completely different size container in different areas So it's less likely for the baker to make that mistake. Okay, sweeteners. Well, while they're not necessary, I mean, the base of breads is basically flour, water, yeast, and salt. And that's how you can produce bread. And then if you use just flour, water, yeast, and salt, really to get flavor, you've got to do a multi-step process to kind of coax the flavor out uh, out of just those four ingredients. And so if you want to do like more traditional doughs, you can affect the flavor and the texture with by just adding sweeteners. And, and they can provide substance for the yeast, and they also can add tenderness to the loaf as well. So there's white sugar, brown sugar, honey, molasses, and agave. And you can substitute one for another. But when you do do substitutions like that, you just have to take into consideration the dry versus wet, right? So what I mean by that, if you're going to use brown sugar in place of molasses, then you're likely going to have to increase the amount of liquid called for in the recipe. And remember, it is possible to have too much of a good thing. And I've experimented with a number of recipes using sweeteners such as raspberry jam, and I used so little of the jam that you couldn't taste the flavor. On the other hand, I've used so many sweeteners in dough that the yeast was overpowered and the dough wouldn't rise properly. I mean, it's kind of a 
balancing game of trial and error. And that's kind of the fun part of home baking. You can really base to your own palate, whatever you like. And most of the recipes at House of Bread use honey as the sweetener of choice. And I paid dearly for that honey. And it's really the, one of the most ex expensive ingredients at the bakery. And it certainly is the most expensive sweetener, but I think it's worth it. So I pay about 120 bucks for a 60 pound bucket. The 60 pound bucket comes in those like five gallon uh, buckets. And give you a comparison, like for white or brown sugar, really it's about 30 bucks for the same amount of weight. Now, if I were to use high fructose corn syrup, which of course I never use, um, it would be about 10% of the cost or rather about 12 bucks. And that's why it is the sweetener of choice in mass produced breads. But the reason I choose honey is because one, I like honey, but really also it has nutritional value. It's easier on the digestive system because if you think of it this way, it's already been digested by the bees. And another important attribute for, especially for a business of baking, is it's a natural preservative. So it'll let the bread shelf life will last a lot longer if you put honey in it. And so we do make certain amount of breads with just flour, water, yeast, and salt. And they really only have a shelf life of about, you know, a day or two at the most. But if I add honey into some of these bases, then I can really get it to stay fresh for like a week on the counter. And I also think it tastes great. And see, mass producers, they try to mimic honey with high fructose corn syrup because it actually is deceptively similar in taste. And also it's the same amount of liquid versus dryness. So you can really substitute it easily in recipes. But really the problem is, is instead of adding nutritional value to the body, it actually steals it from the body. So your honey, your maple syrup, your agave, they all have benefits to the body. And if you think of this way, like sugar and corn syrup, I mean, it's kind of a wash. And my mom used to say it would be like, empty your sugars, like your empty calories. There's no nutritional value in it. And while that is true, it's not like high fructose corn syrup. If you think of it this way, it's like a negative because that's what it, it takes. When you go through your digestive system with high fructose corn syrup, it steals nutrients from the body. So it actually taxes the body. It, anyway, so you really want to, avoid high fructose corn syrup and understand it's not corn syrup. Okay. Cause the corn syrup is a naturally occurring item. High fructose corn syrup, basically they change the molecular structure of corn syrup and your body knows it. Right. And so how it goes into your body. So I mean, you know, most of the food, right. Goes in, goes to the stomach and then out goes. Okay. So like we drink alcohol, we know where that happens. It goes diverted to the liver. Cause that's kind of your filtering device in your body. Well, same thing for high fructose corn syrup. So it goes over to the liver and how they figured that out because they had patients that were having extreme uh, liver complications and um, they assumed that they were, you know, big drinkers, big alcoholic drinkers. And it turns out that no, they were um, drinking a lot of big gulp sodas. And you remember at 7-Eleven, remember how they used to have those big things? My, I worked at 7-Eleven when I was a kid and I, anyway, that, that I actually had my share of those <laughs> <laughs> big gulps because my shift was from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And that's kind of how I, you know, stayed awake during the night. So anyway, high food corn syrup, not good, right? Try to avoid it and certainly don't want to bake with it no matter how cheap it is. Okay, the color of honey depends on what the bees are eating. And the general rule is that the darker the honey, then the, the brawnier the crust of the bread will be. Now, I prefer the light clover honey I was raised on in Montana, but as we try to use local suppliers in California, 
It's a little bit more of a darker honey. And the word is that the local honeys will enhance your immune system and it is good for helping fighting allergies. And although the benefits may be lost in the baking with it, as it's no longer raw, I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in trying to buy local anyway. If you think about it this way, it's likely going to be fresher and you're going to have less transportation costs. Molasses. If you're going to use molasses, that which actually I really kind of like the flavor of molasses as well, it should be unsulfured molasses. You know, blackstrap or sulfur molasses can overpower the flavor in breads. If you're unable to find unsulfured, then just use about a quarter less molasses and substitute maybe some honey with it, or you don't even have to add honey to it. Just use less molasses. Okay, spices and herbs. Unlike sweeteners, spices and herbs won't overpower the yeast, regardless of how much of them you use to add to the dough. Of course, there's a limit to everything, right? Okay, and there's also a limit to what your taste buds will accept. Well, this point of no return varies greatly from individual to individual. I mean, one of the pleasures of home baking is that you can do it your way and incorporate all your favorite spices and herbs. And I had somebody ask me in the bakery once, like, why does all your items have like cinnamon in them? Or, or why do they have all, uh, they don't have cinnamon, they have garlic. And, and I kind of sat there for a second and I'm thinking, oh, gee, I don't know. And I'm like, why do they all have that? Well, I'll tell you why, because I happen to like those. I like cinnamon and I like garlic, not necessarily together. I like them a lot. So that's why they happen to be in a lot of my recipes. Okay, so the proportions of herbs and spices to the other ingredients in the recipes are pretty much middle of the road. You could add or subtract from the quantities listed to the point of doubling or having them, you know, without affecting the loaves too much. So if you take a recipe and it calls for, you know, two tablespoons of garlic, let's say you really like garlic, well, you add four tablespoons. It's not that big of a deal. The only thing is if you're going to use dried herbs, then I really would recommend soaking them in a liquid for an hour or so because it brings out the flavors. And the other thing is like we do a bread called garden herb and it's got, uh, you know, sun-dried tomatoes. It's got uh, basil. It's got thyme. It's got oregano. It's got dried onions and dried garlic. And I can tell if the baker doesn't soak those herbs in advance, you, it tastes a lot flatter. And so what I asked them to do is just, just soak them all in together and then go about, you know, make, mixing the flour, water, honeys, and salt, and then take your herbs and add them in. And if you forget to soak them when you, know, you first start your shift, then just throw them in the microwave. If you throw them in the microwave for a minute or two, not necessarily the system that I prefer they use, but, uh, you know, if you forget, that's what you can do. Just kind of warm them up and that'll bring out all the flavor of your herbs. Now, let's say you want to use fresh herbs. The same thing is you can certainly use fresh herbs. And you can even use like frozen items. You just have to remember about the temperature, right? So yeast does not like cold things necessarily. And if you're going to substitute like chopped onions for dehydrated, minced, variety, or onion flakes, you have to add a lot more to achieve the same degree of onion flavor. Okay, so you're... So your dried out versions, like for example, if you have a, a cup of fresh onions, right? And then you dry it out, you end up with about a third of a cup. So you just want to keep that in mind when you're, you know, mixing and matching in your recipes. Yeah, because like onions are basically, you know, they're a lot, a lot of water in an onion. So it's like 99% water if you think of it that way. And kind of the same thing with tomatoes. And so what I also found is that we add in like the dried tomatoes 
at the end of the mix. And because when we use fresh tomatoes, what happened is it kind of turned the doughs into like a weird pinkish color. And so if you add in like on the focaccias or whatever, if you add in the, the sun-dried tomatoes later, and then you won't have that. And the other thing that we found is that we used to top our focaccia doughs. We tried topping them with sun-dried tomatoes. And what happens is, is that you bake focaccia over 450 degrees, and then you end up with like these burnt sun-dried tomatoes on there. And the same thing with pizza doughs too, if you do it on pizza doughs. So I find if you're going to bake something in, uh, at a high temperature and you're going to put stuff on top of it, Use the fresh kind. Use fresh tomatoes and, and you'll avoid that problem. Lastly, when you get to the point in your bread baking journey that you know what a good dough feels like, then it's just easier to make substitutions in the wet versus dry because you just kind of throw it in there and, you know, okay, then you're feeling the dough and you're kneading it. If it's too dry, like too stiff, then you got to add a little more moisture. And if it's too sticky, keep in mind dough should be sticky though, right? But if it's too sticky, but you can't even hardly knead the dough, then you definitely need just to add some flour to it. Okay, so when you're adding nuts and seeds or dried fruits, and especially with your whole grains, um, you have to be a little more careful. I mean, I love adding in interesting textures and flavors to my breads, but I've also pushed it to the point that the loaf won't hold together. Because one thing you gotta keep in mind is that dough sticks to dough, okay? Dough will stick to nuts seeds and grains. But nuts don't stick to other nuts and seeds and grains, right? So if you put too much in there, uh, your loaf is going to fall apart on you. So you just need enough dough around those items to hold the thing together. And, you know, because I really like uh, nuts and raisins. So I made this cinnamon loaf with a bunch of nuts and raisins. Well, then I'm like, okay, well, we're pushing this. We're going to add more nuts and raisins. It's going to taste even better. Well, the problem was the whole thing fell apart on me. So I would suggest that you follow the recipe the first time and then you add 10% more. And if it all works, okay, great. Then push it some more, add another 10% to the point where you, you'll kind of get to the point where it, it won't hold it up as well. And then you'll know you went a little bit too far. And keep, look at it this way. I mean, you, so what, you take a bit, take a risk and you found the limits and, and what do you, you know, what's worse comes worse. You're eating a crumbly, but the loaf tastes really good. So just, Remember that mistakes, because mistakes really are going to happen in baking, especially if you're experimenting and substituting, and which again, I think that's the fun part. So you're going to make mistakes, right? But they're going to taste great. And also too, is you're never going to realize the potential. I mean, it's just like people, right? We realize our potential sometimes by stepping outside of the comfort zone or like not following the recipe. And then you can really create some, you know, some awesome loaves of bread or experiences in your life. But the problem in the business, though, some of those not, may not be that sellable. <laughs> okay, so when to add in the add-ins and at what temperature? Okay, all my recipes call for adding in the add-ins after you get to the good dough stage. And the reason why is your nuts, your seeds, your grains, your raisins, etc. Um, what can happen is it can cut into the gluten development, which, would which results in basically a short, squatty loaf. Um, and nobody wants a short squatty loaf. So once you get to the good dough stage, then the gluten has strength to withstand the additions of harder objects. For herbs, they have less of an effect on the gluten development as they are small and you actually can incorporate them um, more easily if you add it into the base of the dough. And it's what I recommend is you add the herbs in with the water and then add on all the other ingredients. And, and some of your smaller seeds like caraway, 
or flax or poppy or sesame seeds. I mean, you likely can incorporate them right in the beginning, but when in doubt, just knead a little bit, get the gluten started to develop, and then start adding in these other items. And that will set your dough up for success by letting it strong first before having to fight in all those other add-ins. Okay, the first recipe that I'm going to go into in this podcast is going to be episode number five, and it's Grandma's White. And the reason why I chose Grandma's White, because it's easy. And the other thing is it's a great tasting loaf, and you get a ton of variety out of that dough because it can go savory, right? You make your helping jack, your basil parmesan, all those come out of Grandma's White dough, or you can go sweet. We use raspberry syrup, we do our cinnamon rolls out of that base, and cinnamon syrup. Okay, so what we do is we let the dough rise for an hour and a half. Then we divide and shape the loaves. Then we make the swirls or the blueberry crumbles, whatever. And then we go on to the cheese and garlic ones. And the, the reason why is because we want to avoid like garlic and raspberry. It's not a good combination, right? So, so do your herby things later. And, and the key is, is you get a lot more flexibility of the amount of add-ins and types if you let the dough sit for an hour and a half first and then add in whatever you want to. Now, the temperature of your add-ins is important. And so for most of my recipes, especially if you're doing like sandwich loaves and whatever, they really should be closer to room temperature. That'll allow the dough to rise better and actually also to bake better. So for example, we do a raspberry swirl loaf. We also do a blueberry crumble loaf and we use frozen blueberries and frozen raspberries for these loaves. And what I have them do is is basically thaw them out, get them to room temperature. So when the first thing the baker clocks in is they put the items that they're going to put into the doughs, they put them along a shelf of the oven to get closer to room temperature. And the reason why is because what happens is, is that, so for example, our uh, raspberry swirl loaf, it has, it's two to one raspberries sugar. So if you think two cups of raspberries, one cup of sugar, if it's cold, right, and add it to the dough, What's going to happen is, is that it won't bake properly where the coldness was. First of all, it affects the, it's the proofing time that's first affected. So it's going to be kind of lopsided and it might take forever to proof. And then when you go to bake, it doesn't bake properly either. It's, it, it, it bakes, you know, quicker on the outside where the raspberries not necessarily are located. And then where the raspberries are, it's going to be doughy in the middle. Anyway, so the point is, is that you want to think about the temperature of the ingredients that you're adding and when in doubt, get them to room temperature. Okay, the liquids. You know, the particular liquid used in recipe affects the quality of the bread considerably. You know, water, vegetable broth, and other non-dairy liquids tend to foster a crispier crust and a chewier crumb. Milk will encourage a softer crust and a tenderer crumb, or even like buttermilk as well. Okay, so a good rule of thumb is that the richer the milk, the more tender the bread. So your creams, your cottage cheese, your buttermilk will produce the most tender loaves, as does fattening butter. However, too much buttermilk can give a bread dough so tender that it might fall apart. The other option is potato water. It gives greater volume, as milk does, but gives bread more of a coarse texture. Most of my breads, I just use water. I mean, I think it's simple. You know, it keeps the, the calories down on the loaf. But then, again, we do like to have some rich breads, and we will add quite a bit of butter or like for for challah, which is basically an egg and butter mixture. And, and you know, some people, or we know the health experts believe that it, 
butter should be eliminated from your diet because it's basically a high saturated fat, you know, high in cholesterol. Okay, then there's some other experts claim that it's a natural product and the body can digest it with no problem. And I believe that the balance is the key to life and that a tad of butter, you know, once in a while is really going to kill you. But if you are vegan, then just skip the butter and use water. Just know what the texture of the dough is going to be. And it, like, once again, that's the great thing about home baking. It's your choice. And you can compensate. Like, let's say you're a vegan and you want to take out the butter. Okay, that's fine. Maybe you want to use a little bit of oil. Okay, because it, it will add flavor. Okay, so there's a fat there that you just remove the butter. So add, try adding a little bit of oil. But what you could do is maybe add some extra molasses, right? Or if you're going to go take it savory, you'll then add a little bit more garlic. Because somehow, so you can play around with these flavors when you're adjusting recipes. And as far as uh, it's the type of water to use, um, it really doesn't matter. I mean, really, any water that's fit for drinking will suffice for baking bread. You know, people ask me that all the time. Oh, do you filter your water? Do you use this kind of water, that kind of water? No, we just kind of use warm water, right? So it's more the temperature of the water that affects it than anything. And let's say you want to play with some substitutions with olive oil. I mean, I love to cook with olive oil, but I'm pretty cautious about baking with it. And we use it in our focaccia recipe. But the problem is olive oil has its own taste. And so it's difficult to take a dough to the sweeter side if you're going to use olive oil. And But if you are going to use olive oil, just use the regular old olive oil. Okay, so your extra virgin olive oil, that's really for dipping. And it's a lot more expensive. So just use your standard olive oil because when you bake with it, it doesn't matter. And with all add-ins, the liquid should be close to room temperature or warmer when you're adding in other ingredients. It like... You know, everything in life, there's that general rule, right? Get it to room temperature, but there's exceptions. And that really is for more of the multi-day, like your slow fermentation processes, such as your sourdoughs. What you're doing in those type of doughs, well, so first of all, generally they only have like flour, water, yeast, and salt in those doughs. And so you need to develop the flavor over time. And so how you slow down the fermentation is like you put it in the refrigerator. I mean, commercially, they call them retarders, but, you know, your refrigerator is basically the same thing. So you slow it down to coax out some of the flavors. Okay, salt. Salt brings out other flavors and also will slow down your fermentation, which really allows the dough to benefit from a longer proofing time so it can develop more flavor and texture. And salt will also stabilize and, and will toughen basically your gluten strands, which strengthens the dough for shaping. And let's say, though, you have some diet issues that require you to delete salt. Well, you certainly can delete salt in breads. But what you want to be careful about, though, is that, first of all, salt, salt counteracts yeast. So if you're going to eliminate salt, then you might want to back down the yeast a bit. And the second thing is that salt brings out all the other flavors. And I didn't even know this until I opened up the bakery. Because I can tell you what, like, for example, my honey hole wheat bread. You could taste the honey. There's a lot of honey in that that loaf. If you forget to put the salt in there, all of a sudden you can't even taste the honey. And so, so you just want to be careful of it. What you could try is just make, maybe using less salt. And so using like half the amount. And then if you got to eliminate it all, then add other flavors basically until uh, you get something that might not have any salt in it, but it's still going to taste pretty good. 
Okay, ingredient storage and temperature. I mean, flowers, basically, what I recommend for storage of flowers is to keep them in the refrigerator. I mean, clearly, I've got like, you know, 2,000 pounds of flour at my bakery, and we don't refrigerate it, right? But we use it pretty quickly. So if you're going to use it within a month or so, you don't need to refrigerate it. I mean, probably even a couple of months. And, but if you're going to go a little bit longer than that, I recommend you refrigerate, or you can actually even freeze your flowers. And that'll prevent, you know, if you've gotten, you know, your flowers not so good anymore, because it kind of tastes a little bit bitter. And if you have like your rarely used specialty flowers, you can store them in the freezer. As with everything, I suggest moving them out of the freezer before you use it. And generally your flowers come in a bag. And, and so what I would do is put it into more of an airtight container first and then put it in your freezer or your refrigerator. And your yeast, yeast is best kept in an airtight container in the refrigerator. And like I said earlier, it's going to last you over a year. And you can also freeze yeast. Just Try to warm it up a little bit with some warm water before you use it. And, and same thing with sourdough starters. I mean, you can actually freeze your sourdough starters. And I'm, like I said, I'm going to spend a whole episode on sourdough starters, but they're pretty resilient. And keep in mind also, too, is that if you take yeast directly from the freezer and throw it into your other ingredients, it's because it, it's such a small amount, it, the, the coldness is not really going to affect the dough a whole lot. Just make sure you got good yeast, though, to start with. <laughs> Okay, timing and temperature. If you think about how timing and temperature affect doughs, it will help you adjust to the proofing times in your environment. So the general rule of thumb is that the higher the temperature of the air or water, then the quicker the doughs will ferment. Okay, the lower the temperature, then the slower it's going to ferment or rise or proof, all mean the same thing. Okay, one isn't necessarily bad or good as all doughs are different. However, that being said, most doughs react well to about 70 to 80 degrees of, at air temperature. Okay, this doesn't mean that you have to turn your air conditioning on or heat on for the doughs. Just to take that in consideration when you adjust for how long it will take to proof. Okay, so the lower the temperature, the longer it's going to take. The higher the temperature, the quicker the dough is going to rise and be ready to put in the oven. And with all thin rules, there are exceptions, so you don't want to get it so hot that you quicken the process so much that you don't develop the natural flavors that will take time. And also, too, if it, it ferments too quickly, what happens is it, it doesn't develop strength necessarily, and it can be a weak dough and fall apart on you. Now, if you look at it this way, doughs don't like to be rushed. Then they will rebel on you by deflating, by losing structure. And what you end up with is that deflated short squatty loaf. Right, so all about avoiding that short squatty loaf in the baking world. And if you think of them as a personality and how and when they act when they're rushed, so often pushing them leads to resistance and that resistance can express itself in not some good ways. So be good to your doughs, allow them the time to naturally move along in the process and they will reward you for your patience and understanding by turning out to be mighty tasty for you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And as usual, you'll find out where to connect with me, how to get my recipe book, take an online baking course, or more information about House of Bread in my show notes. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. Until next time, everybody, happy baking.